Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Because I'm fine. Hey, if you're listening to this episode, this is the last episode of the year. This is uh, part three of our best of. Um, really, thanks for listening, and we really appreciate it. Uh, new episodes will be coming out in early January. We already have um, a couple on the butts and the schedule, so I would expect by the second week of January, we'll have some new content for you. Um, hopefully, some new stuff too. We won't. We probably won't have new music by then. That'll be a January thing, probably. Right. No. Right. That'll probably take a whole episode for us to figure that so, out. So if you have any music suggestions or podcast or guest suggestions, topic suggestions, anything, uh, let us know. We always appreciate it. On this episode, we have Mike Adamson, and this was uh, a more of a fun interview for me. Um, he works at Merkle and um, talks about his kind of a background about how he got to Merkle and also details on their new cookie-less audience tracking tool. And so we then we talked about kind of a customer journey process. So it's kind of an interesting discussion there with Mike, who's an interesting guy and really nice guy. And then in the second part of the interview, um, the second, second segment, we have um, Alex Mellett and Lindsay Bartell of Brand Trust. This was their second time on as well. And um, I always like talking to Brand Trust because they just think a little bit differently than I think I do. Um, they kind of have a unique methodology for researching um, trust in brands, which is obviously very relevant in society, especially as we're going through all these changes. And, you know, I think a lot of people just distrust everything. And so brands are, have uh, had a lot of challenges in the past year and a half, and they're experts on it. And so they went through um, this and, um, you know, they have a method, methodology called narrative inquiry. And so I think it was a great episode as well. I do too. I love that interview because just how things are going on now, you have supply chain issues, you have brands that are losing losing their clients' trust or customers' trust, and you really measure that, and I think they get give really impactful insights on how that can be done. So this is it for the podcast this year. This is the last thing. Um, we're recording one more that'll come out actually before um, this is released, but um, you know, it's a good time to say we appreciate everybody. We couldn't do four years without listener feedback, without people listening, without um, great guests, great topics. Um, there's a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of things you could be listening to, um, not just in research, but you know, other professional development podcasts, other more entertaining podcasts, probably other um, interests that you might have you could be listening to. And so we know we have a loyal following and a lot of people listen to us. We get a lot of feedback from people. So we really appreciate you and you know who you are. Um, anything else you want to add to that, Brian? No, just thanks for everyone for sticking with us and happy new year. Yeah. Happy new year, everybody. Um, enjoy the interview with Mike Adams and with Mark Gold, and then Alex and Lindsay from Brand Trust. Special guests, 
Michael, Mike Adamson, who was a um, digital experience strategist at Merkle. Hey, Mike, how are you? Hey, doing well. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you on. What did you think of the intro music, by the way? Yeah, that was uh, pretty rocking. Uh, did you guys <laughs> specially record that for the podcast? We have to talk about the music every episode. It's just a thing. Some no, it's it's an old song from the seventies from the Ramones that okay. a sent to us, and you know it's called EMI, and we're like, oh, that's cool. And the funny thing is, we talked about this last episode too, but we went through this whole contest at the beginning of the year to kind of get involvement from everybody in the company, and we Brian and uh, the marketing team kind of went led us through like I don't know twenty songs. And everybody voted, and we had this whole systematic approach to the intro music. And we picked a song, and it was very inclusive and stuff. And then, like two weeks later, a client said, "Hey, well, what about this song?" We just switched it immediately. Yeah, no yep. feedback. Didn't ask anybody. We just switched it. Yeah, there are times when democracy isn't the right approach. <laughs> right. Uh, and I'm glad you joined. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I was just uh, rocking a Ramones record uh, in my basement this weekend. So um, awesome. Yeah. I rarely get to hear the whole song, so I love hearing the intro, though. <laughs> I guess we'll just get right into it, um, Mike. You, um, you're at Merkle, and I'd love to hear kind of your background. You've been in research for a little while. Yeah, I've been a little all over the place in my background. I actually started out as a copywriter at a really small agency in Chicago. Um, but because it was so small, I also quickly added brand strategy to my uh, my repertoire. Yeah. And um but I, I came into Merkel as a copywriter ooh, eight years ago, I want to say, and then moved into more of uh, an audience strategy and ultimately experience strategy role. So it's been pretty fun. But I did have a little stint where I wasn't at Merkel and I was actually doing pure market research, much like you guys. So um, I can speak the language. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, I love when people j- join a company and then kind of come back to it a couple of years later. I think that speaks volumes of the quality of the company. So it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. They, uh, I, I missed the work I was doing here, which isn't something you can often say. So it, it's nice to be back. Yeah. And Denver's kind of a hotbed of research. You're in Denver, right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And we noticed, I think we talked about this on the news, that um, Merkel announced a partnership with Action IQ and you're adding cookie-less audience targeting tool. It's called Mercury, which I love the website, by the way. It's mercury with a K, dot merkelink.com. Um, are you aware of that? I guess you're aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> Bad question. Yeah, no, uh, Mercury is a, a really exciting tool. Um, you know, it's with the whole Apple move, especially, especially blocking cookies, um, it's going to become way more important to have a good first-party identity graph, I think, for companies. Uh, and so we've seen it grow a lot over the last few years. Um, and it's a really good time for it to kind of be peaking because uh, a lot of what I do as an experienced strategist is um, to try to enable one-to-one personalization or as close as you can get to that. Like we've been talking about one-to-one personalization for years and it's still a lot of batch and audience-based personalization. And uh, with something like Mercury, you can you know, combine your first-party CRM and some third-party data and build these really niche targeted audiences or even down to a single person with, I think they call it a person ID is, is what their um, what identity currency is called. And we think it's really going to help clients you know, move more to that customer-centric approach that we all really want to have. No, that's, that's cool. I always defer to Brian Peterson when we talk about all this 
cookie-less identity stuff because it gets really complicated for me really quick, like what's going on with Google and Apple, as you mentioned. So what I'd love to see is that um, companies like Merkle are actually doing something to, to ensure that you're still collecting the data that we need to, for insights mm-hmm. and in this new kind of world that we're doing. So I don't, yeah. Well, so the, um, the idea is that once you know sort of who someone is, the customer experience or the user experience would adapt to what you know about that person. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, and, and that's part of it. You know, that when you're on a website, oh, we know that you care about um, barbecue and we're Target. So look at this. We're listing all of these, uh, you know, smokers and fancy grill accoutrements uh, right there on the website for you because you're probably going to buy it. Um, but then it also can connect into a lot of cross-channel targeting uh, to where, you know, the email campaigns I'm getting are really tied into what I care about. And when I click on a specific email campaign, that conversation with the brand continues as I land on their website and, you know, see what I was already reading about. Um, and there's just so many different ways you can use that. So just to be, by the way, that that's fascinating. And I agree with Brian that there's tremendous value there. But just to be clear. The name of your company is Merkel. <laughs> the product Mercury allows your website and user experience to adapt very quickly and be very customizable in tons of iterations. So it is Mercurial. Is <laughs> that the best name for a product I've ever heard? <laughs> I, I don't think anybody's thought of that. I, uh, I like that a lot. <laughs> Andrew, thank you for adding that insight because we have a running joke on this podcast where I make fun of basically client names every episode now, and I'd probably get in trouble. Um, and I really appreciate that you added a positive. Um, at least, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. So I don't think I even asked you, Mike, you, you were a copywriter and now you're a digital experience strategist. What, is, what does a digital experience strategist mean other than it's a really cool job title? Yeah, uh, it, it means whatever the client at the moment <laughs> needs it to mean. Uh, yeah. No, but ultimately, uh, at digital ex- on the digital experience team at Merkle, um, we're doing, we're trying to think about how to look at uh, customers in a holistic way with, you know, how we empower that relationship using digital. So a lot of that is website, right? We're a lot of what we're doing is um, building websites for clients and trying to be smart about understanding who their customers are, what they need out of a website and putting it there. A lot of it is digital advertising and thinking about how that connects in or email, how that connects into their um, shopping experience. And then, you know, there's also thought about now, how do we work the brick and mortar into this? A lot of, you know, with this whole last year uh, in the pandemic, a lot of people are going, okay, do we only need to worry about digital now? Is is in-person shopping dead? And, and it's no, we need to figure out how to tie that in shop, in-person shopping experience um, into the digital experience. So we're treating them like a whole person, not just person who's sometimes online and a different person in the store. But but really, it's, it's thinking about the customer at the end is most of the work I do is thinking about what can we learn about customers and how can we react to that knowledge to give them a better experience? That's such a great segue into a discussion that we I thought we'd have around the customer journey. And maybe most people don't even know what a customer journey is. We can talk about that. But I think that it's even more challenging with what's happened and with digital and brick and mortar. And so I think your role was very suited to that. Maybe you can start off with like, how would you describe what a customer journey is and how it applies to kind of what we do? 
totally. Um, so a customer journey map, it, well, a customer journey maps out an audience's behaviors and mindsets through a specific set of moments is would be my high level definition, um, which is broad because there's a lot of different types of journeys that we'll do. Um, you know, commonly we'll look at a, a buying journey because that's what most companies are concerned about is, is increasing purchases. And you want to understand how somebody moves through that process from being aware of the brand to, you know, working in uh, the brand into their consideration set, starting to look at some of those trade-offs, um, making that purchase. And then it's not over, right? Because uh, loyalty is really going to be important. So how can you continue to nurture a person after they've made that purchase? We'll also look at journeys. Sometimes it's with a really specific request. You know, hey, we've got um, a lot of fall off after registration on our website and we need to figure out what's going wrong. So we'll, we'll look at what that full journey looks like from a UX perspective and try to identify where there's some maybe friction points that need to be um, solved for. Um, we'll also do like cross-channel marketing journeys where it's a little, it, it still has that view of the customer of you know what are they doing what do they care about what do their needs look like um but then we can layer in what should our strategy look like how do we blend email and digital and web um, opportunities in these different moments of this journey to make it a more powerful moment and ultimately move that customer further to where uh, i'd say to where we want them to be we like to say to where the customer wants to be because we're customer centric but at the end of the day you know it's how can we yeah <laughs> how can we sell them more yeah, but it's so fascinating to me, like at EMI, you know, a lot of times we think on a study by study basis that here are the objectives of this one study. Here's the sample we did on this one study, whereas a customer journey is much more longitudinal and probably includes a lot of like social science in it, right? Where mm -hmm. you're trying to understand need states and um, all of this complex decision making, and it varies a bit a lot by category. I can't even imagine it's, it's really complex, but it's been the holy grail, I think, for where marketers and insights can kind of intersect. Um, at least that's my take on it. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think that is fair. You'll see it is and it isn't like you'll see some pretty um, broad differences, obviously, between somebody buying orange juice versus somebody deciding what financial planning company they should use. Um but what's also interesting is that we're all human at the end of the day, and a lot of the need states can still measure, or I'll say ladder up to um, to commonalities where, you know, maybe there's the idea of safety in your financial planning, but maybe there's also that idea of, uh, I need to be a little healthier and get some vitamins in here. And, you know, we're all dumb animals at the end of the day who are just yeah. trying to protect ourselves or enjoy this world. No, that's really cool. Um... And so what the side that we don't see that you're probably, as you deal directly with clients on this topic, so you're working on trying to understand the customer journey and mapping it out. What, what, does, what do clients do with, subsequently do with it? Do they make decisions on How do they make decisions on that maybe? Yeah, absolutely. we hope they're making decisions on it. Um, there, yeah, there's a, a, it depends on the type of journey. So sometimes it can be to you know, build that cross-channel marketing strategy and understand how you're different digital assets should play together for uh, to enhance certain moments. Um, sometimes there's a lot of uh, content or communication strategies that we'll see out of it. Because if you're looking at a customer's need states throughout um, that progression of them engaging with your brand, 
you'll sometimes uncover some pretty cool stuff about, oh man, they really, this is a need we didn't understand that we were fulfilling early on in the journey. Let's build a marketing campaign that specifically addresses this need so that we can kind of get them over whatever that fear hump is into the next stage. Oh, awesome. Um, and so I have a feeling quantitative and qualitative both have a kind of a big role in this. This is as I can kind of think this through, you're kind of the expert, but I have a feeling this is like a very longitudinal if possible, but iterative when you're leveraging research. Mm-hmm. How, how does kind of quantitative research help play a part into this? Yeah, you're spot on that, you know, ideally you want qualitative and quantitative uh, in both of these. I've, I've done journeys that have only qual or only quant. And there's always gaps in that, right? Because you want to start with qual to really understand the full landscape of all the different areas that you might need to probe. Um, Almost get, you're almost building a list of, okay, here are all the behaviors that different people take. Here are all the needs that they have. Here are all the pain points we heard about. Um, But you don't know how universal those are because usually with qual, we'll get uh, maybe 10 interviews per audience and say, okay, we see all these themes arising. We've got a pretty good list here. Um, But, you know, I might have, five of those 10 people might have just been uh, especially cranky or stupid or something where you're like, if we extrapolate this to the universal audience population, we might miss because we're emphasizing the wrong thing here. So quant really allows us to, um, to validate and size some of those behaviors or needs uh, so that we can say, okay, not only do we understand the full landscape, but we know how many people care about this and we can start to understand what maybe a a general message should look like and where we should tailor that message specifically to different types of audiences. Now that's, this is really cool stuff. And now, now I can see how this new mercury is, will play a part in this, right? Because you need to have a really in-depth understanding of people and having all this data uh, because you can't ask people 3000 questions and try to understand, Mm -hmm. um, so leveraging third-party data um, and their behaviorals and other digital forms has got to be such a key. So it's, it really makes sense. It's really cool to kind of talk about this because I've, this is such a different, for me as a researcher, this is such bigger and more marketing-centric than I'm used to talking about. So it's kind of fascinating to me. I don't know if Brian or Andrew have any questions. I mean, yeah, no, no, no questions for me. Um, okay. it, I mean, it is... It's absolutely fascinating, right? And it's the culmination of where we should be going. And as we have, you know, more technology and more data, using these insights to then personalize that experience is, you know, it's the next logical progression of everything that we're doing online, right? So it, it it's fascinating, and it, it's um kind of what I would expect from us, right? If we're, if we're being good, good researchers and if brands are being good brands and providing personalized experiences to their customers and their prospective customers, um, it's fantastic. It's only better for the consumer to have something that is um, tailored to them. Yeah, you're right. And I think that, um, you know, we all get so hyped on uh, big data these days, which I've, I don't hear people say big data as much as we used to like five years ago, you know, now it's yeah. so, it's so big that we're getting specific into first party data, third party data, different things. Um, but it, 
like it's such a fun playground with that data, but it's also generally observed data. And that's important, but um, I think without research where you're actually asking people to reflect and uh, make a statement about what they care about directly, you lose a lot of that humanity behind it. Um, so I know a lot of people want to go, yeah, let's just, we'll use the data and we'll map it out. We'll, we'll go into analytics and see how somebody goes through this and then we'll understand it all. Um, and, you know, that only shows you how they're reacting to what's currently there. Uh, I think you really need to open the space up to hear from people. If you're going to talk about a customer centric approach, you have to be able to hear from people what they actually want directly. This is this is probably a stupid question because of, you know, the Merkle brand name has a pretty strong equity and like already in data and technology analytics and helping advertising make better decisions and those types of things. But this approach sounds very unique to me. Is is that true? Not necessarily in that it's <laughs> just uh, like there's a ton of companies that um, will do customer journeys and, and do them really well. And I think most of those are based on research. I hope there's probably some a lot of companies out there who are doing them uh, not based on research as well. Um, but we do, especially this last project where we did a customer journey using your guys' research, um, we had a really unique piece about it that I thought was cool. Um, you know, I was going back to where I was talking about how we kind of all have these uh, constant motivations that you see across humankind. Um, we have an approach called neuroanalytics that is another qual and quant research combination uh, where it's based on a psychology framework called means end theory. And we do these laddering interviews to ask people, um, you know, what they were looking for in a product for the attribute and then what the... Um, functional benefit they got from that attribute was and then what the personal benefit they got from that functional benefit was and ultimately what their motivation you know what they want out of life what was driving this decision in the end and all of a sudden you get stuff with you know an orange juice purchase that you're like yeah i really wanted to be a good parent and uh i want to live life to the fullest and that's why i bought this orange juice and it's like well, how did we get here this is wild but we then use the quant to take that a full kind of mind map of that customer decision process and start to use it to find correlations and like uh, motivations together so we can start to group these ideas and you actually end up with different motivational personas say okay here's what somebody who is a little hesitant and wants security looks like in all these different ways throughout this buying decision and here's somebody who's that adventurous energetic person who wants to get the most out of life and you know what benefits and attributes of a product they're looking for so layering that on and then doing a journey after that to see how these different mindsets differ in the way that they take a journey through something was i think a pretty unique approach um that we, we were really excited about i just want to add to that i think i love hearing you talk about this because you talk you use both quantitative terms and use a lot of qualitative terms and that's necessary for you to be good at your job as, you know, I, mean, I you know, kind of joked around the experienced brand strategist and you joked around that that is whatever it needs to be for the client. But that's true because you got to be a quantitative researcher one day, a qualitative researcher the next day, understand data analytics, and then at a kind of a psychological needs-based understanding, I would think this is a great way to become a, just such a well-rounded researcher. Mm -hmm. um, it's fantastic because I think that's how our industry is moving, that you can't kind of um, 
focus on one skill set to be a good researcher anymore. You kind of have to have that broad base. So I'm really impressed. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm uh, mediocre across the board. <laughs> well, that's what I said my whole career was I was <laughs> mediocre at everything. But I knew a little bit about every topic in research. But that, and that's how I got where I am today. Yep. <laughs> well, if people want to learn more about kind of customer journeys and Mercury, um, I'm assuming they can reach out to you on LinkedIn or go to um, the website. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It'll be it'll be a uh, a tangled web if they're <laughs> going through the Merc or the Merkle website. For Mercury, yeah. definitely go to the website. There are smarter people that can get you exactly <laughs> what you need there. But I'd be happy to talk to anybody about customer journeys. Awesome. Well. We're bringing back an old segment. We haven't done this in a while, have we, Brian? This uh, four Ps. Yeah, I thought I thought it'd make a resurgence here. Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. We so we took the marketing mix and we kind of switched it up to try to get to know people a little bit better. And you're you're clearly a pretty interesting guy. And so we took the four Ps. We kind of took a little spin on them and uh, kind of go through this. If you don't want to answer them, that's fine. The first P is perform. Um, is there okay. something that people don't know about you? Do you have a hidden talent? Anything goes here. Okay. Um, I, I think I have so few talents that when uh, when I have one, I don't tend to hide it. Um, <laughs> but I, I do play a little bit of blues harmonica that I was self-taught and just playing along the Muddy Waters records. Um, but I, and I hadn't played for a while. And recently I was, um, my, my girlfriend and my best friend are both musicians and we were jamming out. And I pulled out a harmonica and started playing. And they both looked at me and they were like, wait, you're really good at that. Where did that come from? And, you know, I, I thought it was probably the four beers is where it came from. But apparently I have halfway decent harmonica skills. That's awesome. That's a great one. I have to tell you, um, I the other night got stuck for an hour. I don't know how I, I thought of this, but uh, on Blues Traveler, the hook song okay someone broke it down and basically the entire song is just like it's about a hook i can as long as i have a hook in the song you listen to it and that's what the entire lyrics are about it's like a genius song but it's the harmonica and um i don't know just found it interesting i spent an hour watching some documentary not even documentaries a youtube video of somebody breaking down those lyrics oh that's awesome yeah that guy can absolutely wail on a harmonica it's unbelievable yeah Next P podcast. You listen to podcasts. Have any favorite ones? Um, I I do occasionally. I'm I'm like too ADD to sit through a podcast, <laughs> so so I have to be like if I'm driving, it works. But if there's anything where my eyes can focus on something, like ten minutes later, I'm like, oh, I I haven't been listening to this at all. So, but I do have a few favorites. Um, my first would be so I'm a big like history and music nerd. Or two of my favorite things. So. The first would be Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, um, which is just like, it's like taking a university course in a subject. It, it's so in-depth. I, th- I think I listened to all, it was something like 24 hours of his World War One podcast. <laughs> and uh, it, it was such a great shift in my perspective because, you know, no matter how rough my day was, I'm like, well, at least I'm not sitting in a trench with cholera right now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Another that I really like, there's one called uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones. It's a in-depth country music history episodes where they'll, they'll take one artist or even one song or a moment in an artist's life and really dig into it and break down uh, how it changed the country music landscape. That, that one's pretty cool. Oh, wow. Is, is there an episode? I'm from Kentucky, and Andrew lives in Kentucky, 
And um, a couple of Kentucky country artists just recently died. One of them is Tom T. Hall and a huge fan. I'm going to have to check that out to see if they've done or will do a Tom T. Hall episode because he's such an amazing songwriter. I would love to listen to Man, that. I did not think I was going to hear Tom T. Hall's name on this podcast today. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, they do have one on the Harper Valley PTA. Song. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for, I wrote that down. All right. Um, you, you have another podcast we're going to listen to I'll mention as well. Um, I think the third yeah. would be uh disgrace land. It's another music and history coming together where they'll go into like the untold stories of uh, rock and roll or even larger music history. And the guy's a good storyteller. Um, so I like that one a lot. I love that stuff. That's, that's really cool. That's three kind of unique podcasts. That's, that's cool. Um, next P pandemic. Um, what are, what are some funny things, habits that you started since the pandemic started? This question came out because I got addicted to marble racing, um, on YouTube when there were no sports last summer. (laughs) So we started asking everybody and there's really cool stories about what people did during the pandemic and new habits they picked up. And some of them are, positive some of them just kind of goofing off and you know providing for some um a little break what about about you i think i actually had to actively start mandating how many showers i took a week because that started (laughs) getting out of control really quick (laughs) there wasn't much i i spent a lot more time like reading books in the hammock you know and it was nice to have this hit when I was in my mid 30s instead of my mid 20s i would have been going nuts in my mid 20s and i was kind of like yeah yeah i can I can stay at home. This is comfortable. Um, but I didn't have any, I, I wasted all that time and didn't build any new skills or, or create any new hobbies. <laughs> well, I don't feel like you wasted as much as I did because <laughs> I, I, I literally watched a gel, a, um, a marble race on Sunday. I'm still in it. It's been a year, over a year and I'm still watching marble racing. Now, like, do you have a favorite marble racing guy that you're like, okay, if he's in, I'm placing bets here. I, I believe yeah. this guy. I, this, so it's called Yelly's Marble Racing. It's a guy in Netherlands, and he does it with his autistic brother. And it's really well done. You should honestly, people should check it out. It's really cool. And there's there's teams, and the the teams he just kind of basically calls them by the color of the marble. And I root for the O Rangers. They're okay. orange, and they're called the O Rangers. That's great that's name. What I root for yeah. So it's seriously, people should check it out just because it's so well done. It's unbelievable. They build these tracks, and it's like a NASCAR event. They have time trials. It's honestly really cool. Funny little joke. I'll check it out. <laughs> and then the last one. Oh, did Andrew add this one? It's a poll. Tell us your best fishing story. Oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> Yeah, I've had some good days fishing. I know Andrew and I have talked about it before. Um, I, I recently, I think it was a week ago, I floated the Arkansas River. I had a friend who's a rafting guide, and she took us out in her raft. And uh, so I was going over rapids with a fly rod, trying to like make these casts while I was bouncing around. Um, that was a blast. Uh, I, I also recently got to go uh, tarpon fishing down in South Florida and pulled in a 68-inch tarpon that was um, out of control. It was an incredible, like a once in a lifetime fish. Well, a 68 inch tarpon, you mount that? What do you do with a 68 inch tarpon? No, you let it go live its life. Um, yeah, yeah, you, it's, you can't even pull them out of the water, uh, (laughs) with regulations. I mean, or with my, uh, physical strength, I suppose, but (laughs) (laughs) how much Um, does a 68 inch tarpon weigh, Mike? Uh, he said one, 150 pounds was where that should come in. So, Wow. Um, yeah, it was it was neat. You know, I was basically trying to pull my mom in. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's awesome. Man, I'm really jealous. Is there good fishing out in Colorado? I bet. I bet there's amazing fishing. Yeah, I mean, the fly fishing out here is, is phenomenal. Um, yeah. And I'll try to get out, you know, up to the mountains. And I, I prefer some of the alpine lakes. Um, I'm never good at river fishing. Like, it's just so tough for me to understand where to hit those spots. And then you got to walk up the river and, you know, I'll ruin whatever pools are there with my first cast. And then the fish are not going to bite. Um, but I, I love the high mountain lakes where uh, you can just watch these things come up to a you know a dry fly and take it. And it's a really cool feeling. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, I've never been to Denver. I'm going to come out there sometime. Um, yeah, man. I've been all over, but I've never actually been to Denver. That's crazy. Would love to show you around. Yeah. Well, listen, Mike, it's been great talking to you. The customer journey discussion, we barely scratched the surface on it. Yeah. And so I would encourage people, if you have more questions about it, reach out to Mike, reach out to Merkel. Cool, dude. I really appreciate your time, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, totally. It's been a pleasure. You guys have a great day, and uh, I'll, uh, I'm going to go watch some marble racing. <laughs> I'm going to listen to some cocaine and rhinestones. I know that's <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Permanently joining us as co-host and producer is Brian Peterson. Also joining me today is Andrew Nacellus about you're about a dozen times in on the podcast now. Hey, hey uh, who, who's counting? But yes, I, I think so. I think so. Uh, glad to be here. Really looking forward to this. And the most important people on the show today are from Brand Trust, who is an awesome market re- research agency. And it's Alex Millett. He is a managing director at Brand Trust. Hey, Alex. Hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, Andrew. Good nice to see, to see you guys again. again. Yeah. yeah. And also Lindsay Bartell, who is the senior analyst at Brand Trust. Thanks for joining, Lindsay. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you guys again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I'm, uh, this is such a timely episode, I think. And we're going to talk about kind of measuring how we measure trust in brands, which is really your core competency. And me as kind of a layman market researcher on the news right now, I'm sure this is probably every day, but right now I was obsessed with what's going on with Southwest Airlines. You know, they, they canceled hundreds of flights, which, you know, that happens sometimes, right? We don't thousands, have, I think. Yeah, thousands of flights over the weekend. That happens occasionally. But now it's like, are you lying to us? Are you telling us the whole truth? And there's probably other examples. I'm sure you all know them. But this is a great time to talk about how to measure trust in brands, why measure trust in brands, why it's important. I thought we'd have a conversation about that today. So that's what we'll talk about. That sounds fantastic. We're looking forward to it. Are you all following the Southwest Airlines story and are you using this like I just did uh, or no? We've certainly been talking about it uh, um, amongst ourselves. The uh, As we were just you know joking a moment ago before you hit record that um, it feels like anytime the topic of trust in brands comes up, it, it's very easy to point to some example of some brand has let us all down in the recent uh, past or in the, in the popular consciousness. Uh, but yeah, this one does feel particularly odd that, that um, we all are aware of, you know, uh, even if we're not flying as much as we used to, we're all sort of aware of what's going on. And to to have them sort of try and explain it as normal, you know, the 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 issues of just trying to run an airline on you know on a day to day basis, and yeah, we see everyone else not having these problems. Uh, it doesn't. It's not a good look, at the very least. Yeah, and not to. I don't want to get into a controversial area, but a lot of this is driven by COVID, and so. 
brands are reacting to lots of government influence and consumer influence on what they have to do. And that's really complex when you have employees and you have customers. But part of this is kind of how you react to what the environment is, which is a little bit out of their control. So that's an important piece of this. I don't think that a couple of years ago we would have thought about this, or at least I didn't. Yeah, I mean, definitely COVID has, has had a big impact. Uh, I, I mean, I, I do want to, um, bef before we talk about anything that might be impacting things in a sort of more narrow band, it is important to note that uh, trust in general, amongst, I'm speaking about the U.S. right now, We Brand Trust does a lot of international work, but we'll focus on the U.S. for now. Um, trust in American institutions and to a large extent, American brands and businesses has been going down a lot over you know the years. If you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, which we obviously keep keep an eye on, the uh, it, it's just been it's been going down, down, down. And uh, the one piece of good news for brands is that uh, it hasn't ever gotten as low recently as as trust in American government. So maybe there's an opportunity <laughs> for brands to do something. Um, yeah. But it's it's good to know that we're in that macro environment of people seem a little bit mistrustful. And then uh, yeah, COVID definitely. We we actually did a a, a um, uh, 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 what we call an original inquiry. We did a study on um, the experience of COVID. Uh, it was, uh, it, we, we actually used narrative inquiry, which is something we'll talk about, something that we, we partnered with you on, something we, we partnered with EMI a lot on. Um, but we also did some one-on-one -on -one, um, in-depth qualitative interviews, what we call emotional inquiry. And we learned that uh, that people were really shook by COVID. It kind of, it shifted things just enough that suddenly everything looked very unstable and uh, caused people to um, really kind of wonder, hey, if, if, uh, if, if this could happen and it could go sort of from zero to 60 um, in a matter of days and weeks, um, can I actually rely on all these things, all these brands, all these businesses, all these companies that, are, um, that I think I can rely on, maybe I can't. So yeah, both, both the macro trends and the immediate, the, the, I say immediate, it's been almost two years we've been dealing with COVID. But uh, yeah. the macro environment, and then also the environment of COVID have all definitely, uh, I think, eroded trust. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, so why would you say it's important for brands to understand a measurement of trust? Uh, obviously, they want to improve trust just like they want to improve their brand equity and they want to improve their um, stock price and they want to improve revenue. But I think trust is like a more emotional kind of, it's more of a feeling, right? Is that how you talk about it? Yeah, I, we, we talk about trust in, in a number of ways, but we have a, a sort of fundamental model that we believe holds true. And it, it's it's something that we spend a lot of time digging into um, the liter you know, the scientific literature and, and things like that around as well. Um, the idea is that it more or less com comprises three components. And the third one, we've had a lot of debate about. Maybe we can have an interesting debate about it today. I don't know. Um, but there are two pretty clear uh, components of trust. One is uh, capability. Uh, does this person, does this company, does this shaky log over a, a, a river, any entity, does it have the capability to do the thing I need it to do in this moment or I want it to do in this moment? And then the second one, and, and here is where we move beyond logs, um, is uh, the, the intent. Uh, not just the ability or the capability, but uh, the the intent and the goodwill to to do the thing. Um, so is it not just able to do it, but but will it do it? Um, will this person 
uh, you know, follow the rules of the trust fall. Uh, will this brand uh, send me this pair of shoes that that I just sent them a hundred dollars for? Um, and then the third one that's a little bit more uh, emotional, as you say, um, we've called it sometimes vulnerability, sometimes reciprocity. Um, Lindsay, can you think of that? We've tossed around some other terms for this as well. I think those are the ones that are sticking out in my mind most. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is about this idea that, um, that there's some kind of, uh, of, of connection, some kind of emotional connection that happens between two individuals or between an individual and a brand uh, that has to do with sort of um, feeling comfortable exposing, you know, being somewhat vulnerable so that it will actually matter if that other entity is, is actually capable and will actually follow through on doing the thing. Um, we've talked in, we've done some studies around trying to figure out if, if the, if the brand itself can demonstrate some vulnerability, like not be perfect all the time, does that send a signal that this is a place where it's okay to be vulnerable? That's something that, that's very interesting. We've seen some, um, some indication, indications that yes, that's indeed the case. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that, that's sort of how we think about trust at brand trust and how we think about measuring it, uh, when it comes to brands and consumers. I was really hoping that we were going to argue about those three, but I think you nailed it. I, I think those are perfect. I mean, um, I love the little emotional piece of it. It's a little bit hard to describe the vulnerability piece of it. Um, and that's, that's where I'm assuming a lot of the research comes into play, right? So most, a lot of brands, it's, it's probably easier to define, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe you'll argue with me here, maybe it's easier to define the capability and the intent part of the brand and what it stands for, but the emotional connection and the reciprocity and the vulnerability that you're talking about, that's where the research and you're all as experts in this field, try to get them to deeper understanding of what a brand really means to a consumer or a user. Is that right? Yeah, I, I um, Lindsay, I'll toss this to you to maybe talk a little bit about how we've used research to dig into these areas. I just want to start by saying that the uh, the, there's both sort of functional and emotional components of all those things. So there's the actual capability, like does the company have a manufacturing plant that makes the shoes, right? But then there's also the, whether they do or don't, can they create the impression that they do? I, we could, you know, I, I don't want to say anything controversial, but I, I could argue that, you know, Tesla or something like that, you know, back in the day, um, you know, maybe created the impression that this was um, a trustworthy um, entity before it actually could maybe, um, you know, completely fill, uh, you know, play that, live that out. So, so there, all of those components have both um, functional or rational and emotional components, but absolutely the third one is the most emotional. And so, yeah, so there are all sorts of ways that we uh, dig into these uh, questions around trust and brands. Um, as I was saying before, we uh, sometimes it's around, a lot of the times it's around our flagship methodology of one-on-one -on -one in depth crawl. Um, but when we partner with EMI, we're often doing what we call narrative inquiry, uh, which is an online, we, it, we've, we've taken to call it, um, you know, the, the traditional term would be quality quant, but we've come to call it as quality scale uh, because it really is about getting uh, deeper insights and deeper learnings through the power of memory and the power of story. So we've used narrative inquiry for a few trust studies now, um, both broad-based ones, general ones, and what specific ones for clients to learn about their brand and their category. 
Lindsay, you're kind of the expert on that as the senior analyst. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about narrative inquiry in general? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just as you were saying, Alex, you know, it's our quality scale methodology. So we can do uh, surprisingly deep qualitative research at a larger scale than our normal one-on-one -on -one in-depth interviews. So we're able to do hundreds of interviews through our surveys within a a couple days, a couple weeks. Um, and narrative inquiry utilizes the power of story paired with applied behavioral science to go beyond traditional online survey output. So we're able to actually capture emotion and capture meaning to illuminate human truth, which is what Brand Trust is all about doing. We want to illuminate human truth for, for our clients. Um, so what this looks like is we'll, we'll use a combination of kind of open-end questions, short answer questions, multiple choice, scales, whatever you're looking for. Uh, but really the, the crux of it is those open-ended questions where we're asking for stories, we're asking for experiences from our respondents. And so we gather that data and then we use human analysis, uh, mostly myself, along with a few other uh, colleagues here. So we use that human analysis for those data points and the stories that were shared uh, within the open-end questions. And so through the human analysis, we're able to read between the lines and kind of get at what are they really saying? Whereas if we were to just kind of run that through, you know, an, an AI um, or some other kind of uh, uh, testing to, to find out what they're saying, we might not get the, the real emotion and the real meaning behind what they're saying. So we're able to use our own human instincts, our own human analysis to get a deeper understanding of what the respondent shared. So that comes into play a lot, especially in those uh, trust studies that we've been talking about, you know, just being able to get beyond what are people saying and what are, what do they really mean? No, that's, that's interesting. And you said this is really kind of a what I would call like a quantitative online survey with, did you say hundreds of people where you're, where you can do this? Yeah. Oh, yep. Oh, wow. You're getting, you're certainly getting into the quant territory with a lot of the advantages of qual. That's pretty rare. And I think that's where our industry is kind of moving that way. We, I was at a conference recently and a lot of brands don't even talk about quant or qual like they used to. It used to be there was a, this big differentiation between this is a quant, this is a qual, we iterate, we go qual, quant, qual, quant. I feel like as an industry, we're really moving to this hybrid, I have a business question and I have all these tools to utilize to answer that business question. And they don't call it quant, they don't call it qual, it's really a, a tool to answer the business question. That sounds exactly what y'all are doing is this hybrid methodology where you talked about it as the power of story applied with paired with applied behavioral science. That's really interesting to me. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that is what helps us to kind of go beyond traditional surveys. And, you know, of course, with, with your help, you help us to kind of weed out some of those respondents. But I think we, um, you know, what we use through those behavioral techniques and things uh, already kind of helps us to make the respondents kind of the best that they can be. So they're able and willing to actually share those stories with us uh, versus just saying, 
oh, I want to get through this survey as fast as I can. Give me my incentive of whatever it might be. Um, we actually get people who are engaged and really want to share their stories with us. Yeah, I think the the key differences, and first of all, I want to say we're all after, and if uh, our CEO um, heard that I talked for 10 minutes about brand trust without mentioning human truth, I hope he doesn't listen to this. Goodness, so Lindsay, <laughs> you get the award for that. Um, but, but the human truth really is critical because it gets at the, at the, the crux of why our survey design is different. Um, because fundamentally, there's just two components to any kind of research, but especially a, a quant survey, right? There's gathering the data and analyzing the data. And I feel like a lot of um, surveys that are, whether they're, I mean, they're more typically associated with quant, but they might be associated with like a focus group or something like that. They're sort of like, tell me why you do this thing or tell me what you think about this thing. And that's exactly the kind of conversation we have with our clients. Let's figure out what we want to know. But then that gets fed into a completely different questionnaire design, which is how, how do we design this questionnaire to elicit the kinds of stories that we can then use as input to our analysis to actually answer the question. Because the consumer is, bless their hearts, they, they're, they're, they, they're not gonna be able to tell you exactly what kind of product they want. There's the classic you know, Steve Jobs example of uh, you know, no one ever asked for an iPhone sort of thing. Um, but uh, what we can do is we can, we can figure out how to pull from sometimes even the, the non-conscious of the, of the uh, respondent because they're not sort of aware of the answers they're giving us. They're, they're just telling us their stories. We can actually pull the answer by having them tell us all these stories. And then to Lindsay's point, doing the human analysis um, to figure out what are they actually trying to say there? What, what does this actually mean? What's the why behind the answer to the question? And that can get us some really powerful answers for our clients that, that which we label human truth. And the only other thing I'll say that's really interesting to me, because we have tried a lot of, I should say, Lindsay, all credit where credit is due, has tried a lot of different text analytics and things like that to try and automate some of this, some AI and stuff. Um, and that has not worked really well because the computers just aren't that good at, at figuring out the gray space between human emotions. Um, but one thing we have been trying with more success is to um, do some coding, to code the types of themes um, that show up in different stories so we can get a little bit more of a quantitative, you know, um, angle on which big themes are showing up more than others without, um, you know, without having to read every single word. And that helps us hone in on the stories that matter the most. But um, I think I got that right, Lindsay. You've done a lot of that work. Yep. So I want to circle back to, uh, you both have mentioned a couple of these elements multiple times, but I know, uh, Alex, you just said, God bless the hearts of the consumers, right? Well, really, you know, even more so the online quantitative survey panel <laughs> respondents, right? Um, but the, the topic I want to talk about, you know, you, you mentioned sort of having a really high level of engagement, um, eliciting the thoughtful types of respondent responses that are then impactful for this kind of research. Um, you know, we have had there's been this incredible trend towards prioritizing quality, which is almost a pendulum. We swing between price and quality, feasibility and quality. And, you know, as we make compromises, um, we always kind of come back to quality. But in a world where there are some panels who will limit the number of, of open ends, um, 
you know, to three or four or five, which, in which, by the way, too, I don't know how much this crosses into your world, but when I say three to five open ends, brand trust in your world, that's three to five short answers. That's not even entertaining the idea of doing the type of storytelling open ends that, that we do in narrative inquiry together. Um, but, you know, I've looked at these surveys, we've done them with you, I've looked at the data, you know, you all are able to get these incredible responses. Could you kind of describe for me, obviously you don't have to give away, you know, kind of the secrets of exactly how narrative inquiry works, but maybe describing you know, the process and how you built that, that experience that works so well, what went into that um, and anything that you're able to share on the process. Cause it, it really is, the quality is driven by the respondent experience and this narrative inquiry is just such an incredible example of that. Yeah. Um, so our, so narrative inquiry really came about by thinking of how do we do our research that we are so good at and so well-versed in with, you know, one-on-one respondents how do we take that into an online format? So everything that we do in narrative inquiry is rooted in what we do in our methodologies that we've been doing for 30 years or so. Um, So we take all of that and kind of put it into narrative inquiry. So uh, where that research would typically have a moderator, we put a, a quote unquote moderator in our narrative inquiry projects. So we have a, a, a screenshot of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A stock photo of a person who says, hey, my name is so-and-so, I'm gonna be your uh, moderator for this. She introduces herself or himself. We uh, actually have it set up so that the um, moderator is very similar to the respondent and how they have uh, talked about themselves in kind of the screening process. So if they answer that they are a female aged, you know, 30 to 35 of Caucasian uh, skin, that's the person that they're going to see as their moderator. And we found that people feel a lot more comfortable and feel a lot more open and willing to share things, especially some of the things that we're asking asking them about, which can be pretty deep and, and pretty meaningful to them. They're more willing to share those things with people who look similar to them. Um, so I think that's a huge thing that we found in our iterations of narrative inquiry that has helped a lot with making feel, people feel more comfortable to share with us. Um, So we do that. We also kind of set things up up front. We say, hey, it's going to take this long. It's going to be a little bit longer than what you're used to. It's going to take you maybe 20 to 25 minutes to complete this survey. But we put that all up front. We say, this is going to be different than what you're used to. So, you know, we we hope that you're going to remain engaged for that amount of time. Um, We have different tips and tricks like that we've found over the few years that we've been doing this that that have worked really well and kind of build on each other. But I think those are kind of the, the two main things, you know, having someone who's similar, who makes you feel comfortable and it makes you feel like you're not just talking to a computer. You're not typing things into a computer. You're actually feeling like someone is going to read these. This 
human, uh, quote unquote, again, whoever, however he or she introduces themselves, this person might actually read them. So I want to try my best and give them what they're looking for. Would it be fair to say that, you know, the combination of a, a personalized um, moderator and you talked about setting really transparent expectations of what what is, you know, kind of above and beyond what we typically ask of the respondent. Um, basically, what you're doing is building trust with that respondent, right? I see is what you did there, you Andrew. You can yeah. say that. <laughs> no, I, I think that's really cool, though, because we can, as we continue the, the conversation, you know, it's not just brand to consumer, right? We can also apply all of this from a, a research perspective. I think I'm interested to see if we can go down that road. But no, that's all yeah. really cool. And, and I see everything you talked about, Lindsay, is absolutely borne out in both qualitative and quantitative metrics when we run these surveys. Um, it's been really cool to see it in action. I could add two quick things to that one, which is a kind of uh, um, a little bit more sort of technical and functional, but um, it's also a shout out to you guys. Um, but I think partnering with the right, um, you know, sample provider and platform provider is really important. Um, cause one of the things we've noticed, we were already, we've already talked about, this is a 20, 25 minute survey. Um, it's really critical that we don't burn people out during the screener process. And, uh, we've had to have long conversations with clients about this who maybe have unreasonable expectations. Um, this is why we call it quality scale, not just, not uh, quality quant or quant. Um, it's not about slicing and dicing by all these different, you know, it's, it's really about let's get, let's hone in as quickly as possible on the cohort we want to speak to with as few questions as possible, and then spend the vast majority of time collecting their stories. So working with someone who knows how to go find those types of people and make sure that we've got people who can make it through that screener um, is really important. And then uh, the second thing is is um, is stories, hearing their stories. I think the power of story, we've mentioned it a couple of times, we haven't really talked about it, is uh, people, humans love stories and humans non-consciously arrange their memories and their lives around stories. And they, they, keep, they keep information through stories and they like telling stories about themselves and people love just plain talking about themselves. And so when people, get into this survey, which is essentially just for, you know, to nuts and bolts of it, it's essentially two or three story. There might be a small barrage of questions on the back end or a couple of concepts to test, but basically we're collecting between two and three stories about the category, the brand from these respondents. Um, and once people get in there and they just start typing away, a, you know, a, a story about themselves and a moment that is, they are the star, it turns out people really kind of like doing that. Yeah, I, I bet it's it's got to be a, a refreshing in some ways. If you can do, if you can effectively do the things you're talking about, which are to give the respondent an opportunity to kind of tell those stories, and it's a little bit different than what they're used to, uh, that's where kind of magic happens. And I, this is a question really for Andrew. We, this sounds challenging, and you know, Andrew, you're a pretty good researcher, and most online quant, there's no way most respondents will be good respondents in this kind of scenario. I'm curious what your thought process is around how you find these respondents that are clearly doing what they what they want them to do. Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, and you know, I 
to give credit where credit is due, the engaging nature of the questionnaire and the, you know, as Alex just mentioned, the, the inclination to share rich feedback based on the exercise itself does go a long way in amplifying the good qualities of the panels that we choose. Um, from a like strategic sourcing perspective, which I think is what you're asking, um, really what we look for is we look for any panel that has a multifaceted respondent experience as far as how the community is actually managed. So if there's a panel that, for example, we know they also sell um, in-home use tests, right? Or they recruit to online focus groups, or perhaps they even recruit to in-person or telephone idea, so on and so forth, right? Um, but there's a varied research usage for the asset, then the potential that the respondents have been exposed to um, methodologies that require more feedback than clicking multiple choice questions, right? Um, then the more likely those respondents are to engage with that when asked to, uh, to provide their feedback in that format. That's one thing that I look for. Um, the other thing, and this is particular to EMI, uh, but we, you know, we run a couple thousand surveys every year, um, and we monitor dozens of, of quality metrics on every single panel and every single study that we run. And you know, we've had a quality dashboard for a couple years, but we recently just rolled out um, a whole new dashboard that actually has a, a proprietary quality scoring methodology attached to it. Um, and so I think, you know, choosing a panel at random and running it through something like narrative inquiry would be disastrous, right? Honestly, um, you know, especially you throw a, a minimum word count at someone who doesn't want to type and we're going to get some really interesting, interesting feedback. Um, but really, you know, just if I can combine those two things and say, okay, looking in our system, this is a, you know, honestly, probably top 2%, top 3%. I mean, we're cream of the crop from a post-survey removals metrics standpoint. Um, really high quality there. And I know that these respondents have been exposed to more than just pure quant. That combination, you put it through a great survey like Brand Trust's Narrative Inquiry, um, and we're set up pretty well for success. Awesome, great answer. Um... Is there anything else we'd like to talk about in narrative inquiry? I feel like we just kind of got tip of the iceberg here. Do you have a case study or anything else you'd like to mention before we go to some more different kind of questions? So, yeah, I mean, we've done this. Um, a, there's a lot of, I should say, first of all, there's a lot of material available on our website, um, www.brandtrust.com, um, spelled just like you would think it is. And uh, we've done, we have, for example, um, a trust study that we conducted a few years ago that's up um, there free for download. We're also doing a presentation of it, a webinar presentation of it um, coming up on November 4th. You can go to our website and uh, sign up for it there. You can hear us walk through there and you can actually ask questions through the webinar. It's November 4th uh, at noon Eastern, 11 Central. We're Chicago based, that's why I say the 11 Central part. Um, so yeah, so definitely go check that out. Um, lots of interesting material in the webinar itself uh, you can sign up for. The uh, 
I, the one thing I'll mention, maybe we, we never really answered that question at the very beginning, other than the sort of intuitive answer of why should brands measure trust? Uh, and I'll just mention that there was uh, there was a client uh, of ours. Um, so and then the one other thing I would mention is that uh, we do do these. We have a lot of broad based uh, knowledge about trust and thought leadership available about trust and brands. And then we also run studies for clients to help understand more deeply what how trust shows up in their category, how trust shows up uh, with their brand, their their uh, their consumers, their audiences. Uh, for example, a few years ago, we did one for a large uh, membership-based organization here in the U.S., um, where they had actually determined that one of the key drivers through, through um, quant work with another agency had determined that um, that one of the key drivers of their brand equity was trust in the brand. And they felt like what they really needed to do was unpack that. They couldn't just do another survey or, or something like that or just go attack it. They had to really unpack it and understand it. And they came to us and we did emotional inquiry. That's our, we, we've sort of alluded to that a few times, our flagship one-on-one um, uh, in-depth interview methodology. Um, but we also did some broad-based narrative inquiry to um, both validate the findings from emotional inquiry and to dimensionalize them across a few different populations that were of interest to this organization. And it really helped them identify some key tactics, some key strategies that they could go after to actually shift the needle on trust in the brand, which in turn would shift the needle on their tracking of brand equity overall. Um, and they've had a lot of success with that uh, since we worked with them a few years ago. Awesome. So I will definitely sign up for that webinar. Um, we'll put that, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And that is uh, Thursday, November 4th at noon Eastern. Should we ask some fun questions, get to know you all a little bit? Woohoo! <laughs> and Andrew, feel, feel free to jump in here, Andrew, if you'd like. Um, we're bringing back the four P's. We haven't done this. We've done it a few times this year, but we took the marketing mix, uh, four P's, more traditional, and we try to have get to know our guests a little bit better um, with some questions. And so the first P is perform. Do either or both of you have something that maybe most people don't know about you or a hidden talent? You can um, go first, Lindsay. Oh, geez. I don't know if it's that most people don't know. I feel like everyone at, at Brand Trust knows it about me. Um, I do a lot of CrossFit and, and working out. Um, I don't know if it's a hidden talent, but most recently I deadlifted 265 pounds. So that oh was exciting. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Is there a link to your Instagram on your website? <laughs> there That's is not. <laughs> wow. I can't, I can't beat that. Uh, in in either literally or or in story form, <laughs> right. um, uh, I would say that one of the things that uh, that pe most people don't know about me, uh, or they just seem surprised if it ever comes up in conversation, um, is that I am a certified scuba diving instructor. I spent a couple years uh, um, right after college uh, teaching scuba diving and and kept my certification up. So if uh, you know if uh, someone ever wants to start on a whim, wants to learn how to scuba dive, uh, I'm I'm your guy. Okay, this this is a follow-up question. Do you travel and scuba dive or do you jump on the Lake Michigan? What do you where do you scuba dive? <laughs> I, I actually don't I don't dive very much anymore. I'm yeah. I'm sorry to say. Um, but uh, if I do, it's because I have traveled somewhere warm and where no wetsuit is required for sure. That's my first rule of scuba diving now. I will only go if no wetsuit is required. Because I taught in the Pacific Northwest where at least a wetsuit, if not a dry suit, was required. And it was great, it was fun, but those days are behind me. 
That's awesome. Andrew has a million hidden talents. You want to mention one? <laughs> um, I don't know about if I really have a million hidden talents. I'm, I'm trying to think. This is one of your pretty standard peas, um, and I've been on a while, so I'll try to do one I haven't done. Um, have I mentioned before that I'm a cellist? Have I said that before you on the podcast? You no, I don't not, think so. Not to yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do. I played the cello. I've been playing the cello for, gosh, 17 years now. Um, I played in college. I was in Xavier's Symphony. Um, I don't really play in an organized fashion anymore, but every once in a while, I'll break out the bow, rousing up the strings, and play when my kids are nowhere around to destroy the instrument. <laughs> but yeah, and that's literally perform, I guess, right? Musical instrument. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, next P is pandemic. It's my favorite P um, for the podcast, not in real life. Um, do you have anything fun or quirky that you started doing since the quarantine started? I'm still addicted to marble racing. The new season just started recently. Um, Yelly's marble racing on YouTube every Sunday. That's what I do. Curious if either of or both of you have anything weird that you've started doing or continue to do during the pandemic and quarantine and the world. I'll, I'll take this one first. I'll begin by saying I, I knew that a lot of uh, sort of obscure sports had sort of risen in popularity during uh, COVID and quarantine, for example, uh, you know, bags or, or cornhole, as, as I know everyone calls it in Cincinnati. Um, I did not know that marble racing had uh, had jumped up into the top echelons of competitive sports. So um, congratulations on uh, taking part in that, Brian. Um, I Mine is pretty easy because it's very memorable. I, it's not something that I took up in general. Uh, but a, a couple of uh, in around the end of March, beginning of April last year, uh, I'm from back east. Uh, my family has a place in Maine. We live in down, you know, in Chicago, just outside of downtown, outside of the loop. And things were getting a little wacky. We have two young kids. And we said, you know what, maybe it would be better if we just sort of went somewhere a little quieter um, to ride out, you know, the next three, four weeks, just while things are, are really nutty. And um, so we got in the car with the two kids and drove straight the thousand miles from Chicago mm -hmm. to Maine. And uh, I mean, a cooler full of sandwiches, yelling at a, at a, at a five-year-old to go pee on the side of the road. I mean, the whole nine, it was really, it was, it was the closest thing I hope that I'll ever experience to like zombie apocalypse. That's really what it felt like. Um, and then the two things that are funny about it in retrospect, one is obviously you know, we didn't leave for six months. We thought we'd be there for three to six weeks top. We, tops, we were there for six months. And then the other one is that now the science tells us that 90% of our precautions, maybe 95% of them were totally absurd and unnecessary. But um, that, was my, that was my zombie apocalypse moment. And in some ways I look back on it fondly. <laughs> Alex, I'm glad you could look back on that fondly. I have two kids who are probably close to your kids' age. And driving a thousand miles with them sounds awful. <laughs> it's the power of the iPad. Oh. Yes. oh, Lindsay, top that. Oh man, I don't know if I can top that. Um, I I think the the quirkiest thing, I guess. Um, and it, it's I guess it's more my boyfriend's thing than than mine, but I help him with it. Um, so along with, I guess, marble racing and competitive sports, um, sports cards and memorabilia has also 
had a huge boom. So my boyfriend has gotten into collecting and, and selling uh, mostly football cards, but also some NBA cards um, as well. And he's actually started his own business with that. So I've been helping him with that. I guess the main thing that I kind of do is organize everything because <laughs> our basement is just filled with boxes upon boxes of cards. So I've had to take it upon myself because he's not an organized person. I've had to organize every single card and every single box. And that's what I've been doing. <laughs> that's right. The, the researcher in you is probably forced. You have to do it, I'm assuming. Um, you have to put some structure around it or, yeah. Um, well, these are great. Um, let's move on to pampering, top indulgences. Either of you have some something you indulge in and I'm gonna throw Andrew in this one as well. Andrew, you wanna take it first? Sure, I, I can. And this sort of might tie into a, a little bit of the pandemic one too. So my, uh, my wife and I went on, um, we went out to dinner for the first time in, in two years for our anniversary um, a couple of weeks ago. And as one of the appetizers, we had a charcuterie board. And we realized that was the first time that we had had some freaking meats, cheeses and crackers in two years and what is you know what is life without that um and so over the last uh you know so it's been about a month um every friday night we make ourselves a, this massive charcuterie board for dinner um and we have been indulging financially in some crazy meats and cheeses and um yeah there's a store here in cincinnati called jungle gyms that's just they import crazy stuff from from all over um and we have yeah we, we've had some pretty pretty great charcuterie boards so yeah meats cheeses and crackers that's what i'm pampering myself with Ryan. that's good good one that's the way to go. I, I'm all about the charcuterie boards. <laughs> um, I guess along the same lines, um, we, my boyfriend and I do uh, a steak night just probably like once a month. We'll just get gigantic porterhouse steaks, um, you know, get the cast iron really hot or the grill, uh, put those on there. I usually do Brussels sprouts uh with them and so we have that we have some wine and that's usually like a a monthly indulgence and then i always have chocolate uh, chocolate covered pretzels after <laughs> but we've actually been indulging in the office and we get a little crazy in the office sometimes and also my objective is to give people fomo about not coming in the office so what we've done my intern works at one of the nicest steakhouses in town and she, I found out they throw away these mashed potatoes every night. They make them in the evening and they throw them away if no one eats them. So I said, bring them in, we'll use them. And then I'm like, well, if we're going to have this premium mashed potatoes, we're going to cook some steak. So I went out and bought some like premium steak. We have a little griddle in the office and a toaster oven. And we cooked like a hundred dollars worth of steaks for lunch and had mashed potatoes and stunk up the whole building. Um, so we indulge we've done it a couple times in the office that's that's fun for me at least i don't know about brian i don't oh the yeah. amount 
the amount of appliances that are taking over our like, you know, little kitchen that's basically just supposed to be a Keurig and snacks. I think there's an air fryer. There's like a countertop broiler. There's, they're bringing in so many different things. Yeah. Yeah. Between this the steak, is, you had, there's cookies that appear every week. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. the, the Frosted Flakes chocolate indulgence we heard from the guy from Kellogg's. I mean, yeah. it's a weekly occurrence. Yeah. Isn't yeah, isn't our annual fried chicken day coming up? Yeah, that's coming up next month. We'll promote that on the podcast soon. <laughs> our annual fried chicken day. I think um, we're are we gonna get a fryer and do our own chicken this year? We could. Yeah. Sounds like it'd be pretty on brand for you at this point. Yeah, it would. We, we, we need How do you I get in on this? Answer. Yeah, come on down. Yeah, can, can you send your people to come? I'm in Pittsburgh. I'll just drive on down. <laughs> Yeah, bring the boyfriend. We'll set up some a workout for you. Um, it'll be it'll be awesome. Um, Alex, we skipped you. What have you been indulging on? We've talked about food now for fifteen minutes. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like I should I should continue the trend. Um, the I, this doesn't happen all that often, but I will say one of the things that um, that I enjoy most doing that uh, the family enjoys as well. Well, at least my wife does. I can't say that the kids care this much about it, but I really enjoy making a, a good stew, like a, a, a beef bourguignon or, a, you know, we try a whole bunch of different, you know, recipes. And um, that is one of my real happy fall winter moments, um, something I indulge in, you know, sort of maybe five or six times every, um, every season, take a whole Sunday, do it up, obviously that you got to pour some red wine in, then you got to pour some red wine in your glass. It's a, you know, it's sort of equal parts. If it says, if it calls for one bottle of red wine, bring two. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that is definitely along that theme. That's something that I've always really uh, enjoyed. Uh, the thing I was going to say before that, which is just funny to me because it's such a, it's, it's my, probably my ultimate dad moment. Um, the, the only time I get to myself in any given day, right. is sort of like, six, you know, six to six thirty AM or something like that. Um, and I have a I'm not gonna I'm not joking at all when I say this. I I really have a kind of a moment of Zen moment when I I watch the local weather in the morning before everyone else is out of bed. And it's my moment to sort of see what's going on in the world. What do I got to plan for? Um, it's such a dad thing and uh I am gonna own it. That's awesome. The little things in life. Alone time, planning your day, knowing what the weather is. And in Chicago, that's very important. And in May, yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Um, Alex, Lindsay, coming to Cincinnati anytime. Um, we love having you guys on the show. Um, for the listeners out there um, that got through the food segment, please visit brandtrust.com. Um, consider going to the webinar Thursday, November 4th at noon. It's in the show notes. And I appreciate everybody joining the the podcast today and Andrew thanks for joining as well thanks guys it's been a pleasure thanks everyone yeah thanks this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com Thank <laughs> you.